hold on to your butt. I'm quite surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Woe is us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Joey Clark. Uh, hello and welcome to the program. You are listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. I am your host, Joey, and I'm very excited for tonight's show. And it's nice to have on a guest that I'm not first meeting just on the airwaves. My guest tonight is Jeffrey Tucker. He's the Director of Content for the Foundation for Economic Education. He is out with a new book. It just came out, I believe, yesterday called Right Wing Collectivism. The Other Threat to Liberty. So without further ado, Jeffrey, how are you this evening? Everything is great, and thank you so much for having me on. I'm so pleased about the book, really, and it's already having a big impact. I mean, I think it's number one in new releases, and, you know, it's it's an exciting topic, an interesting, to- or interesting topic, and an urgent topic. It really is, and I kind of wanted to frame it this way, because I think you know that I've become a fan, despite his uh, political fealty to socialism as he understood it george orwell i was uh look i i first off tried to go through your whole book last night luckily i mm-hmm. i read some because i follow you but uh the preface by deirdre mccloskey first off is so generous and so beautifully written yeah. i was introducing the audience to some of deirdre's ideas on monday about how capitalism or free markets not only make us rich but allow us to live more virtuous lives right. But I was thinking about Orwell, and Christopher Hitchens claims Orwell got the 20th century right in three ways. He stood against empire, he stood against fascism, and he stood against Stalinism or communism. Now, mm-hmm. what's interesting is his fascist, anti-fascist writing really isn't that famous, because he sort of assumed, when he looked at these national socialist, nationalist socialist movements, that they meant war. Literally, they stood for war, and it probably meant there would be war. But as he goes to war in Spain against Franco and all the support, he realizes some of these guys I'm working with are awful themselves. I can't work with these Stalinists. Now, I think the shoe is now on the other foot. For libertarians who consider themselves right-wing, we need to start examining that there is such a thing as right-wing collectivism, and it is not gone from this world. Joey, this is the reason I wrote the book, because there are hardly any living people today who have any, um, how should I say, uh, experiential awareness of this ideology. And which is quite remarkable because, in a way, fascism, I, I actually, I, technically, I call it right Hegelianism for, for reasons I hope we can get into. But yes. uh, this, this ideological structure, which is, a, which is a, a, a real philosophy, it's a more or less coherent philosophy with identifiable elements that keep repeating itself, was one of the most successful, dangerous, and deadly of the 20th century. But a very interesting thing happened. After World War II, and the exhaustion and destruction and smoke cleared and, and just this, the horror became obvious with the death camps and everything else, I, I think that the Western world just decided to kind of adopt a sort of 
I don't want to call it amnesia. It was, it was, uh, we all pretended as if the enemy had been defeated. Mm. And, and that was it. Like, uh, you know, a war with such great cost and great horror and great, just, I mean, so disruptive of American life and such a massive cultural, political, economic trauma. We wanted to believe that we had uh, vanquished this evil from the face of the earth forever. So, you know, as we approached the 50s and the, and, and the, the 60s, uh, we had a profound awareness that, that uh, the communism was a, was a threat, but we kind of ruled out the possibility that there was another iteration of, of totalitarianism still out there in the ideological world, and and we we just quite frankly decided to stop studying it, to to understand it, and uh, it 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 just really evaporated from from the from the possible from our from our conception of what was possible in the world, right. you know? Because after all, uh, what was that war worth if, if it wasn't for the extinguishing and destruction of, of Nazi totalitarianism, you know? So as we approach the 21st century, um, you know, now communism is, has gone from the world, and we thought maybe the only enemy out there was this kind of ISIS extremism. And, and so we've been completely unaware of, of the political dynamics of what I'm calling right-wing collectivism or right Hegelian. Uh, and, and, and it caught everybody truly by surprise. I mean, we haven't really understood this movement. You know, I think back uh, on, on Hillary Clinton's speech, uh, her famous deplorable speech. Right. Now, this, this is in a very important moment because she, she stood up and, and she took notice of the fact that, that many of Donald Trump's supporters hold egregious views and she said she said they're they're, they're racist there's there's anti, anti-semites there uh they hold a lot of bad boy uh uh, uh opinions that are, that are contrary to the civic consensus we've worked so hard to develop and something about the way she framed it uh it came across wrongly i mean what she was trying to do was kind of raise an alarm bell about something that she didn't actually understand right yeah, she didn't understand it but she didn't want to understand it thoroughly she just wanted to identify the the marks of it that uh that she and her friends objected to and what it, what that whole speech did was was backfire you know and it basically created the deplorable movement and fed you know the old right movement well and really hard and it's interesting you bring up that speech. Steve Bannon, who is now long, no longer with the Trump administration, just did an interview with Charlie Rose where he said, he after he's hired, she does that speech. Um, and she's calling out the alt-right. And as Bannon said to Charlie Rose as he's watching it, we got her. Because I, yeah. th- I think there's something going on where there are some incredibly toxic uh collectivist right hegelianism as you put it and man hegel is a whole other uh, whole gordian not to untangle and we can get into that in a second <laughs> but you make the point in the book that it is not all conservatives who voted for trump it is not necessarily all people who really voted against hillary clinton even rather than more for trump but you said that this ideology this right-wing collectivism is sort of fighting for the soul of the right but especially yeah. if you are a libertarian you do not need to be dabbling with this as an ally no 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 right and and i'm glad you brought, brought this point up and i i hope i emphasize this 
book, I do mention in passing, probably not enough. I am not actually talking about conventional American conservatism, like really at all, uh, of the Burkean sort or even the Joseph de, de Meister, you know, sort. I mean, that there were the European uh, sort of uh, tra- traditionalism, conservatism. This is a, a different thing entirely. It's a... Uh, a thoroughly modernist ideology. It does not date to the Middle Ages. It really is a post-Enlightenment ideology that fights extremely hard against modern conceptions of freedom. By modern, I mean post-Adam Smith conceptions of freedom, you know? Right. Uh, the idea that we don't need slavery, for example. Uh, the idea that we don't need dictators. Uh, the idea that uh, everybody can realize a certain dignity in life through commercial uh, commercial uh, f- freedom and opportunity I mean the, the, an opportunity society I mean this this ideology fights hard against that wants to roll black uh, the clock essentially uh, to uh, to the hierarchy hierarchical um, orders that well it's all myth but to, to, they imagine that there's these hierarchical orders that they can roll back the clock and and restore and really reverse laissez-faire um, the, the laissez-faire, freedom-oriented uh, society. That's that's really its core. And yes, Trump. Uh, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't want to pretend to to take him apart psychologically or whatever. But I mean, he certainly was 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 willing to throw out enough signals uh, that would cause people to sort of sort of uh, that that movement that was that was in its nascent form to glom onto him and troll Trump the way they trolled Pepe the Frog, you know, right. and yeah, and use him as a kind of vehicle for the imposition of essentially another form of totalitarianism. And what frustrated me, and the reason this book book exists, was that I found myself in a kind of rearguard action for the last really two years, two, two, two years and a few months, uh, trying to explain what this ideology really is. You know, we're not just talking about politically incorrect bad boys that are rejecting certain uh, civic conventions. We're talking about a full-scale political ideology that is essentially totalitarian in every respect and really represents, you know, a grave threat to all the freedoms that most everybody actually uh, uh, treasures and I, I knew it from. This is why I opened the book with with uh, restating my my initial thesis from from July 2015 when I first heard Trump's speech. Now again, I don't want to. I'm not one of these guys that says, you know, "Oh, he's literally Hitler." That is not what I'm saying at all. But when I first heard his speech, I was amazed at how he touched on all the core themes of this right Hegelian ideological apparatus. I mean, he, he begins with uh, uh, with uh, protectionism, essentially. And I, I, you know, and I argue in the book that there's no such thing as, as right Hegelian fascist right-wing collectivism without protectionism. I mean, it's just at the very core of the view uh, for, for a number of reasons I, I explained. And then he moved on to the immigration point. And so he gradually kind of wove a story in front of this audience in Las Vegas where I heard him in which all your problems are due to outsiders, mm. just something other than the nation state. And uh, that's a very interesting thing because you don't, we haven't seen, at least in my lifetime that I can ever remember, uh, another politician sort of sort of uh, push all those, all those buttons. 
And so people were just, you know, feeling this sort of great nationalist feeling like, oh, yay, rah, rah, America, you know, um, which is, there's nothing wrong with feeling patriotic, right? But but he was tapping into something else. The rest of the world is an evil. Uh, everybody's pillaging us. Everybody's looting us. Um, uh, we have reasons to be angry at at the other. You know, there's there's... There's foreign threats. They're they're trying to invade our borders. They're they're stealing our goods. They owe us money, and that's why uh, that's why the economy is stagnant. That's why I'm I'm not feeling as rich as I thought I was supposed to, and so on. So he really tapped into it, and it was very very effective. Oh, and then, you know, he ended the speech by saying uh, some or another version of "Only I can fix it." Give me all power. I'll be the CEO of the country. I'll run it like I've run my like I've run my my companies. Give me the power. Give me the tools, and uh, trust me, and I'll I'll make all this right. And it was absolutely strange to me when I sat in that room because, um, you know, I what I saw here were, were political themes that I had studied only recently that emerged out of the interwar period that had long been left on the table. Like, nobody has talked this way since, like, like Franco Mussolini and, and, uh, and, and so on. Not, not, not to this extent, at least not in, in America. And, these, and this conservative and libertarian audience in there was initially gravely skeptical of this, what they considered to be this clownish New York real estate developer. But by the end of his talk, I think as many as, a, you know, a quarter to a third of the audience had already been converted to this cause. They, they believed this, this cause and effect that he was laying out. Yeah. And it was extremely powerful. And I realized at that moment, oh, that's why this succeeds. That's, this is the way it works. You know, you, you, you have somebody coming like, along like Obama, you know, who, who represented a kind of a, a left social democratic ideology uh, didn't manage to get us out of uh, economic stagnation. Everybody's angry about it. And then the guy who represents the allegedly opposite, but actually very similar point of view, but just with different cultural signaling, comes along and says, give me all power and I will, I will make this ride. And people are, 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 are ignorant of their... Um, of economics, essentially, of, of, of liberalism, old classical liberalism, and they're very, very inclined to want to trust uh, somebody who says, a powerful man who says, I share your values, give me, give me all power, I'll vanquish your enemies, uh, domestic and poor. Well, and, and, and yeah. It makes me worry in the sense that there has, long before Trump, this building up of the cult of personality, the great man around the presidency yeah. itself. But then also, over the weekend, I really did dive deep into a book I know you've suggested. I, it, 1944, Ludwig von Mises' Omnipotent Government. Yeah, that's, that's the book. And really, so I, I saw exactly why you would have, hearing Trump at Freedom Fest in 2015, would have saw these things. That if you have, in my mind, why we have economic stagnation has to do with central banking, inflationary monetary problems, uh, so many regulations here at home, controlling the labor market. But Mises said that leads to protectionism abroad. And it's interesting how he talks about in that book that once these reactions against liberalism happened in the late 1800s and into the 1900s and the European nations around Germany, 
are really in starting to engage in more protectionist policies, it sets up the scene for authoritarians to take over. And that's yeah. what I'm worried about. We, it's almost the same situation today. So when we say something like, oh, we don't want a trade war with China, it's not just about, oh, I'm not getting the wages I want. Like, a trade war with China could possibly set up an actual enemy with another nationalist nation. And it could lead to actual war. These, I, these themes are so serious. And do folks, do you find, not make that connection between economic policy no. leading to foreign policy? No, no. I mean, it's so interesting to me. I think you and I knew many people during the election that said, well, Trump may be bad on economics, but he's good on foreign policy. And you just want to hold up and say, wait a minute, you know, he, he's, a, he's a protectionist, he's a mercantilist, you know, he's a, uh, a, a sort of a, a national uh, industrial, industrialist, an industrial policy guy, you know, I mean, he's railing against Amazon, railing, you know, he's railing against internet commerce and that sort of thing, globalization, it all goes together. You can't have this kind of economic policy in today's world without setting up a p potential for, for vast international conflict. Um, I'm so glad that you were reading. You're reading on Mises. I mean, that book is as spooky as any book yes. I've ever read. And I tell you, the amazing thing about—I uh, don't know why these things happen—but that's exactly the book I was reading when I first heard Trump speak. Mm -hmm. And I was absolutely—I um, don't know how to describe it—but you know, just a sense that history was coming to life before my eyes. And and I walked out saying, "Oh my God! Did you hear it? Did you hear what we just heard?" And hardly anybody around me even understood. They said, well, I didn't particularly like it, but, but why do you find it so prescient? You know, why do you think, why do you, why do you, why are you so, uh, it sounded it sound like it's just an assembly of sort of bad ideas. And I said, no, no, it's far more than that. It represents a coherent philosophy. And people were like, I, I don't think so. It's just Trump rambling on with his usual baloney. Okay, so what led to the current book is I did basically undertook two years of research to try to figure out, uh, the trace out the origin and lineage and progress of the ideological structures of what I'm calling right-wing collectivism. And I, cause I, because I wanted to know for myself, I knew this is a coherent political philosophy, more or less. It takes different shapes at different times and different places, but, but it all has the same pieces. And I wanted to know where it came from. Uh, so I dug, I dug back, and basically I went in reverse order. Right? <laughs> I went to the inter, I went to the interwar period, and and um, you know I finally tackled you know Carl Schmidt, and you know I, I looked at this this weird dude Julius Caesar Evola, and I kept dipping back and back, and then I bumped into the early progressives. And this is one of the great ironies, uh, Joey, is that if you look at the um, early progressive movement, they called themselves progressives, but actually their views were not that different from what we call the alt-right today. Mm -hmm. There's a great demographic panic uh, about, you know, the wrong people are getting rich. You know, we need to use uh, some kind of coerced measures to uh, better channel uh, reproductive strategies so so that our populations remain, you know, like uh, zoologically sound. You know, it's very creepy stuff. You still hear some people talk about it like that today, mostly the alt-right. But the alt-right views are really no different from what were considered to be progressive ideas 100 years ago. And I don't think these, a lot of these alt-right guys understand this. So then I got, so 
bit of sidetrack and, and, and understanding the history of eugenics and tracing it back to the 1870s. And, and then also the whole anti-commercial movement of, of, of England with the writings of John Ruskin and then going back uh, 30 years earlier to the writings of Thomas Carlyle, who was the guy who turned, coined the term uh, uh, dismal science to describe economics because he resented the fact that economics uh, had an aspiration for the elimination of slavery. And he said, well, if we eliminate slavery... Uh, will absolutely ruin all the important hierarchies that exist in the world. So this science is, is dismal. I mean, that, that's a true story. That's amazing, because so, I've used dismal science yeah. as a joke and then find that's the origin. It's Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, it was it's basically fascist origin. It's a fascist, fascist origin. Uh, to to resent economics because it wanted to it wanted to eliminate because economic economists were the classical liberal economists were the first to really imagine that we could just we could do two things we could eliminate slavery and we could actually grant uh, women uh, legal uh, equality you know with men so uh, so the sort of the right Hegelians of the mid nineteenth century fought against this. And then I rolled back and back and finally landed, of course, it was the writings of Friedrich List, of, uh, of Hegel, and then Hegel's teacher, uh, Fichte, and his addresses to the German nation. So what, I, what I've tried to do is piece together a story of the rise of this movement from the early 19th century up to really essentially I go up to World War II. And once, once you get past World War II, you start getting into some very, very strange and dark Movements that really lurked into the, sh- in the in the shadows under rocks, you know, uh, just hid in alleys of capes, you know, essentially until very very recently. Well, and folks, the reason I have Jeffrey on tonight is, of course, because this book, Right Wing Collectivism: The Other Threat to Liberty, you can find it immediately on Amazon.com. Is the purpose of this show? Is I feel we are facing the crisis, the same crisis of the 20th century, the issues, the catch-22 of empire, uh, right-wing collectivism, left-wing collectivism, and we have to find our center and make moral sense of who we are as a nation, then figure out who, what is our faith, what is our identity, not just religious faith, but who we are as individuals, as people, what is our hope, what are our projects for the future, how we're going to achieve them. And and we've got to take a quick break here, Jeffrey. Um, but as we come back, I want to get into what a nation is if our center is liberty. And right. as we enter the break, I do this every show, Jeffrey. The song I listen to today, I know we can stream any music we like, but the song I listen to today on my vinyl record player is called Mountains by Prince. And it starts off as this kind of fanciful, once upon a time in a land called fantasy, 17 mountains stood so high, the sea surrounded them, and forever they would be the only thing that made you cry. The devil told you another mountain would appear every time somebody broke your heart, said the sea wouldn't one day overflow with all your tears, and love would always leave you nowhere. But I say it's only mountains in the sea. There's nothing greater than you and me. Love will conquer if we just believe. The song then goes into more social commentary. So I think it's faith, hope, and love that will get us out of this. And coming back, we'll continue talking to Jeffrey Tucker about his new book, Right-Wing Collectivism, The Other Threat to Liberty.
place the river region turns to for news, weather, traffic, and opinion. News Talk 93.1 FM WACV. Joey Clark. Well, welcome back, folks. You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. And yes, this was also playing on my record player this morning. So what? Miles Davis off his album, Kind of Blue. And uh, my guest, Jeffrey Tucker, you actually, this was a, a straight-up coincidence. You wrote a piece on this recently. <laughs> I mean, I've, had a, I've had a great week of writing. I'm really proud of it. I wrote about the glory of plastic dishes. You know, uh, warning about right-wing Hegelian, Hegelianism, explaining how to, uh, you know, block Nazis on the internet, and also, I think, a very pretty reflection on, on the pianist who's playing on this album, Bill Evans. Yeah, he's uh, incredible, and I hope folks check out your work. You can find all Jeffrey's essays over at fee.org, F-E-E dot org. You not only, you know, run content over there, you provide a lot of content, and it is always thrilling stuff. Now, I want to move to, I think, what's very important, because people think about being patriotic and loving where they're from and who they are, and there's nothing wrong with knowing where you come from, who you are, and where you want to go. But what happened with the Germans so much is in the, you know, the 40s, but before that in the 1800s, is they took this liberal idea of self-determination, and it transformed into... This nationalism, I think they circled around around language, but you've laid out all the different ways people have tried to find nation based off a, a classic work. So how would you say somebody who cares and loves liberty, wants it preserved, should think of a nation? Yeah, yeah. Okay, th- this is a gigantic, Joey, this is such a gigantically important topic, and, and, and if any of our listeners imagine themselves to, to think, of, think of themselves as something like libertarians, for example, right? Or for that matter, conservatives. Or for that matter, you know, social democrats or something. Very few people have put thought into this idea of what is nationalism. And we, we just don't know and we don't think about that. And, and as a consequence, we're, we're kind of intellectually vulnerable to people come along and say, hey, you know, I, I love the nation, you don't. And you're, you're like, oh, okay, well, what does that mean? I mean, we all supposedly love the nation, right? Right. Well, it turns out there's a, you, you just put your finger on it, the, this nationalism is an ideology that's, a, that's relatively modern. It's a 19th century origin. Uh, I mean, you could go back 300 years before, and what we thought there was no such thing as the nation state, essentially. The nation state was an invention of the late 16th century, early 17th century, as, uh, as, we, as we understand it. And it became about large territories, and uh, it was unknown, you know, in the, in the, in the old days, and the German principalities and so on. There was no such thing as nationalism. There was only just territories that were lorded over by various big shots. You know, there was no there was no grand, you know, historical project to create a nation, you know. Well, um, in the 19th century, I think it was about the 1880s, there's a French historian by the name of Ernst Brennan who delivered an address that basically went viral for the 19th century state. <laughs> and, you know, and it's because he was the only guy who actually sat down and said, okay, what are we talking about when we talk about nations and nationalism or a nation? What is a nation? That's the name of the essay. So I'll try to burn through this really quickly. But what he says is, 
uh, there's a liberal view of, of nationhood, which locates affection for one's, I guess you could say, homeland or affections for one's country, I guess you could say. Actually, homeland's the wrong word, country, uh, within the heart. So as, to summarize, in, in, in Albert J. J. Knox's great statement, he said, uh, where there is liberty, there is my nation. I, I don't know if you remember that statement from Memoirs Superfluous Man, but I love that statement. I never understood it. Hmm. What he's doing is sum- summarizing Ernst Brennan. Brennan said that that uh, a, a liberal, uh, a free man's view of nationalism is essentially it's located within your heart. You love liberty, and where there is liberty, there is your nation. And that's it. But he says that is not the modern view of nationalism. And if we don't get this right... We're going to screw it up. And now he enumerates five ways in which the kind of violent nationalism uh, takes shape. And the, the first one is uh, that the nation is based on a certain dynasty, like a, like a family control mm. or a, you know, uh, uh, you know, an oligarchy of, of some sort. Like Game you know, of like, Thrones, oh, they, yeah. Yeah, 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 okay. Right, or, you know, the Habsburgs or, uh, you know, the, the, the Rockefellers or something like that, right? <laughs> right. Right, uh, uh, You know, or, and, and the second one is, is the, the language group. So we all speak German, we all speak English, and that sort of thing. Now, you see these, all these forms popping up in, in every, every, every country that's various forms of nationalism. So the third one is race, that it's only for white people, or it's only for, uh, you know, the Scots, or, uh, you know, or for that matter, it's only for the Jews, or, you know, whatever. And uh, uh, and then you've got religion. You know, actually, the Jews should be included in the religion one, but you know, it's only for Protestants. It's only for uh, Muslims. You know, and uh, Sunni Muslims. You know, that sort of thing. Right. And the and the fifth one is that the nation is a purely geographic uh, indicator, and so you see that in the history of you know, for example, manifest destiny. It's clearly the case that America needs to. Uh, exist sea to shining sea, that sort of thing. So Rannan says that those are the five forms of illiberal nationalism, and that essay just blew me away. I like I like taxonomies anyway, right? Right. But I, I couldn't personally think of any form of nationalism that fell outside those five categories. And it, you, you get a, a you know, figure like Trump, and, and Trump's all at the beginning, we're going to see this stuff throughout the rest of our lives. Um, they blur it. You know, they blur it, they throw out the ideas like, uh, yay America, go America, you know, uh, up with nationalism. And, well, what are you talking about? Are you, are you talking about language, race, religion, uh, dynastic control, or purely geographic? You know, we need to know. They rarely explain, but it has to be one of those five, or most likely a combination, a shifting combination of those five. So when you hear this, you can know almost for sure. That somebody's coming after your wallet and coming after your freedom. That's just the bottom line. Now, there is, again, as you mentioned, a form of nationalism, or rather, I should say national affection, right? I, every time you put the word ism at the end of a word, just look out, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Something bad's about to happen. I've learned this. Racism, nationalism, socialism fascism and so on. But but national affection is something else. And he calls it essentially an affair of the heart. It's it's what, what you value most in your life. You know, the thing that animates your spirit and that you aspire to as an individual and the things that you inspire others as an individual to believe in themselves. 
there, so there is a form of national affection that is consistent with freedom, but it's almost been vanquished from there. I'm sorry to say. Well, and I still see a big, a large remnant, if you can say large remnant without it being self-contradictory. I see a remnant of folks, and to quote from your book, and this is actually quoting Renan, quote, man is a slave neither of his race, nor his language, nor of his religion, nor of the course of rivers, nor of the direction taken by mountain chains. It's only mountains in the sea, Jeffrey. A large aggregate of men, healthy in mind and warm of heart, creates the kind of moral conscience which we call a nation. And I was saying on Monday that if America does not find its center, and if it was not for that sort of classical liberal libertarian backbone that can be found in, say, the Bill of Rights and the Declaration of Independence, I think this nation would have already torn itself apart. But there is that love. I hear it from conservatives. I hear it from uh, Democrats. The best impulses of Americans, no matter how heated they are, come from, I think, this cornerstone of liberty. But we have to be clear, and, and you've written about this, that it is not necessarily, it might be historically true, but that love of liberty, that cornerstone, isn't, it can, it's portable. It isn't just about geography. Yeah. It can be shared with yeah. other parts of the world. Right. This is what was wrong with uh, uh, Trump's speech, I think, in France or somewhere. I wrote about this. Yeah. That kind of nationalism is an idea, and ideas are portable. And, and you look around the world, and you can see how the American idea of liberty and aspirations for dignity, and God bless Thomas Jefferson, right? Right. <laughs> um, life, liberty, and I'm so glad he didn't say property, uh, because in those days it would have been confused with, with slaves, actually. Right. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I don't. I don't know if there's more a more beautiful phrase in the English language, and you know, that that phrase has gone viral all over the world, I mean, in every country, in every religion, race, uh, geography, dynasty. You know, it's it just transcends all these old-fashioned ideas, and just holds up a candle and a light to a beautiful future of peace and prosperity. And flourishing for all. And honestly, Joey, you know, I, I that's that's where my heart is. That's where my aspirations are. That's what drives me. That's the vision of the world that gets me up in the morning, that keeps me writing, keeps me working. That's why this book exists. I want to do whatever I can in my life to promote that view of the world and to fight every opponent to some violent, warlike alternative. Well, and there can be a harmony of interests. Uh, there can be, I think, despite people are flawed, and we do have a lot of threats, I think, the social democracy, social democratic projects in the post-war era are, are sort of coming apart. They haven't served people well. I think some no, of the, right. the market rhetoric... Um, I think Deirdre McCloskey makes a great point. We've relied on just self-interest and prudence alone too much to explain how the world works. And so since there is sort of this fight, I think, on the left and the right right now in yeah. the United States, it is time to remind folks of 
that backbone that can be shared with the rest of the world. And folks, don't get me wrong. There is nationalist threats. There are rising things going on in China and Russia. I think the last Stalinist true regime looks like they handed them 1984 is North Korea. Um, so, but there are threats. But I think if we serve as an example, you know, Reagan had such wonderful rhetoric about this shining city on the hill. Didn't always follow through on the rhetoric. But that's, I think, right. where we find our center again. It, you know, Joey, I don't even know if you're alive in the 1980s, but uh, 88 December one of the, first. Okay, one of the things that's, that's funny to me when I think back on those days, the 80s, and even to some extent in the 1990s, I don't think we knew or fully appreciated just how kind of classically liberal the Republican Party uh, was. I mean, there was a consensus that we need we need free enterprise. There was there was a, a love of, of immigration. Uh, you know, there was a, a belief in the the portable ideal of, of of the Declaration of Independence and so on. And I'm I'm so uh, t- taken aback, I must say, about the dramatic shift that's happened in the Republican Party uh, over the last two years. That this this sort of inner liberalism of the conservative, as we used to call it, consensus in those days is almost extinguished. I mean, which is, sounds like I'm making a case for despair. Actually, I'm not. I, I, I actually am excited about the future because I think we've got a really clean division. And I go into this in the book. Uh, we've got a clear distinguish, uh, divisions out there now. We've got a kind of a a collapsing left-wing social democratic failed paradigm model that the Democrats are rallying around. We've got a kind of mercantilist, increasingly fascistic uh, uh, industrial policy uh, nativist ideology emerging within the Republican Party base, not so much as its elites, but in base. And I think that provides an opportunity for those of us political independents who are who just want to be left out and just, and just want to have freedom and have a good life. I don't don't think it's complicated. (laughs) Well, and in so many ways, uh, like, I think what you were just describing is a reaction to uh, the hubris of central planning on the international scale, that you Mm -hmm. don't need trade blocks to have free trade. That, you know, if Britain, you know, does Brexit and they pull out, it depends on the reason they're pulling out, whether I like it or not. If they're pulling out so they can uh, trade freely with Canada and Australia and the United States and anywhere else in the world, I would love to see that. It's these... It's all tied together. For instance, Ukraine, the takeover of Crimea by Russia, it was over a trade deal. Are you going to be part of this trade block in Europe or this trade block with Russia? It couldn't be. We want to trade with both of you. Uh, the hmm. and and it's and I actually remember the story from college. I won't go into. That's what I suggested to my professor. Ukraine should do. They should trade with both Russia and Europe. A f- policy of unilateral free trade. And he was a big EU fan. He told me I was naive and just wrong about all that. So you know, huh. we saw how that yeah, worked. I've never, I've never understood. I've never understood that. I've never understood that conflict. So some sometime when you and I have time, I, I just want to want you to. Explain all that to me. Well, I'll, I'll, I never have understood it. I'll, I'll get into a little bit, but another story from college was I was going to take a class on Marxism because I wanted to understand Marxism. It was a good, you know, growing up a conservative Catholic household. Let's learn about the evil Marx. And I did this 
I, I stayed up all night reading the beginning of this textbook the teacher assigned that was about the ph- philosophical underpinnings, how Marx inverted Hegel. Um, he flipped Hegel on its head. Instead of us moving towards this great spirit and general will, it was, no, it's actually these material conditions that are moving us toward communism. Yeah. And I spent all this time trying to understand it. The teacher covered it for 15 minutes in the first day of class, and then he moved on to just talking about the history. Like, wait, what? And it, it, it's in my mind that we have to understand these philosophical underpinnings Else we become sort of the serfs. Uh, I think you used the phrase in the book, we're slaves to uh, philosophers we n- don't even know of. Right, defunct philosophers. Uh, this, is so, this is what's so interesting to me about this. I mean, people ask me all the time, it's like, do you think the leaders of the alt-right community understand this? Do you think Trump understands this? Do you think Bannon, do you think Bannon understands it, actually? Yeah, he does. But <laughs> I, I would say it's kind of mixed. We, uh, people have spotty knowledge, but Unless we take seriously our obligation to read in the history of ideas and to understand the philosophical roots of our political views, we really do risk being manipulated. And listen, nobody knows this better than you. I mean, you are intensely and intimately involved in the political conversation in this country. And and I can't. I, I can imagine it must frustrate you when you're, you're talking to somebody, and, this, and you do this every day, uh, and you hear them spouting off certain language and rhetoric and ideas, which they, they believe to be their own. Right. But you know for sure that that idea was planted in their brain by somebody from somewhere. It is not ex nihilo, as we say in Latin. You know, <laughs> it... it, it, it it does come from, and you you experience this every day in your job. You're like, oh, that's very interesting. I know exactly where that idea came from. And you probably are sophisticated enough to even trace these things. You know, you can hear an idea two weeks ago that sounded a little bit crazy, and then two weeks later, suddenly your average caller is, is using that same idea. I mean, it's a kind of a marvel, the extent to which people are willing to lend their brains to the causes of others. Well, and you see it on on both sides. You, I certainly. Well, I'm having this moment though of uh, this exact phone line that you're talking to me through right now. Donald Trump was on. We're going to be winning so much, you're going to get tired of winning. And at first, I thought he was a clown, and then I started really watching him, listening to folks like yourself critique him. And to make clear to folks out there listening, Jeffrey is not a member of the Democratic Party. Jeffrey is not part of the media elite establishment. It's these sort of labels that I think do us disservice. And at the end of the day, for me, I think I've written about this, and you published it, and thank you for that, Jeffrey. It is not about Trump. It is not about Obama. It is about that nation and what that love, that conscience you have. So, you know, tomorrow we have a debate for who wants to be the next senator from Alabama. It's not, will Luther Strange or Warren Moore serve Trump's agenda better? Who will better take it to the left? Who will take it to Mitch McConnell and the establishment? Stop it with that, folks. Who will better serve your love of liberty in the cornerstone of this nation? And that's right. what I hope for. And that's why I think your book takes people out of the political moment in the fight and says, look, 
there's this history. There's so much. And for folks who don't know, your book's really a collection of essays. You don't have to sit down like I did last night and this morning and read it straight through. Uh, you can, no, no, it's you can you can you can go through the whole thing. I wrote all these essays. It's like all, every book I've ever written. I have like six out there. You know, I I write them. You know, as I develop an understanding, and I and I post what I understand the day I understand it, right? And so, what ends up emerging um, is a kind of a, a chronicle of the life of my own mind, and I think that's a really honest and sincere way to write a book. Uh, because we're always in a discovery mode. Yes. Uh, that's wh- how I look at every day. What 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 can I learn new today? And you do the same thing, Jelly, and and you post it. And so, you know, I got so many requests. It's like, can I get all your essays that are related to the alt right in one place? And I was like, yeah, well, we can do that. So that's essentially what this is. Yeah, and it ends with, of course, uh, a tribute to the idea of liberalism and. I love that word so much. I know that some of your listeners are going to be offended by it. They're going to say, look, I'm not a liberal. But, you know, the truth is, if you want to be left alone, if you just want to live a normal life, if you want your children to do well in this world, if you want to be a good person, to not harm others, not be harmed, that puts you solidly, squarely within what used to be called the liberal tradition from the late Middle Ages all the way up to the present. I, I wish we could recapture it. Beautiful word. I don't know what other word to use, essentially. It, and I've been convinced of this as well. And, you know, we have to always be careful about isms because, you know, some yeah. people I think these days, as you said earlier, you know, oh, we'll just take power and call ourselves libertarians. <laughs> uh, no, that's, that's right. And, and really, the authentic liberalism is the only ism that isn't an ism, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's, the absence, it's the absence of rule. It's not telling you what to believe. It's, it, liberalism is the aspiration that we can all believe whatever we want and still get along, still benefit uh, from each other's presence in this world. And I think that's, that's a really beautiful vision. I, th- I think it's the most important idea that has ever been thought in the history of humanity. I mean, it's, it's the idea that builds all the beautiful things around us. And I, 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 I don't think there's a future for humanity apart from that a- idea. We certainly can't win with this warring tribes model that's alive out there, the left, the right, the Islam, the Christianity, and the blacks, and the whites, the women, men. I mean, this this struggle, nobody's going to win. We need to find ways to get along and benefit from each other's humanity. And the philosophy that aspires to that is was once called liberalism. Call it what you want. I don't care. You call it a potato. It doesn't matter to me. What matters is the content and not the word. We need to figure out ways to get along with each other, observe the beauty and harmony all around us, find value with with each other's presence in each other's lives, and get to work build rebuilding civilization. I mean, that to me is what we're here to do. That's what we should aspire to. Well, Jeffrey, thank you for being here tonight. We're out of time. Again, folks, my guest is Jeffrey Tucker. Check out his book, Right Wing Collectivism, The Other Threat to Liberty. And everybody have a good night.